Everybody wants to play a bigger part. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody's wondering what we are at heart. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody wants to play a bigger part. Why are you waiting for tomorrow to start? This is day one. All right, my friends, welcome to the Day One Leadership Podcast. My guest today is an influence and social marketer whose research has focused on shifts in technology and how they impact the ways in which we interact with one another. She's the former head of public relations, communications, and corporate reputation for Microsoft Canada. She's a professor in the postgraduate programs at both Seneca and Humber Colleges and the former director of marketing at TELUS Corp. Her PhD focuses on an important movement in the workplace, entrepreneurship, which I wish someone had told me existed while I was miserable at my old job. Please welcome Chitra Anand. Chitra, thanks so much for coming and joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's amazing. I'm fascinated by the work that you do because as I started researching it, I thought, wow, this this was a problem I faced Mm -hmm. and I dealt with it by quitting. Mm. But there's so much more to it than that. Mm -hmm. But let's go back a little bit Mm -hmm. and ask you this. If your life so far Mm -hmm. had to be written in three chapters, Mm. what would the titles of the chapters be? And can you give us a synopsis about what's going to be in each one? Oh, it's an interesting question. I would actually divide them by um, decades. So my 20s, my 30s, and my 40s. Because, you know, in my 20s, I think about my most formative years. I think about, um, you know, it was really around self-discovery, um, you're in university, you're traveling, um, you've got, you know, you're falling in and out of love. It's really around figuring out who you are, what you are, what you want to be. Um, and they're very formative. You don't really know where you're going, um, but a lot is happening during that decade. And then you take all of that, all of those experiences, and then it moves you to your 30s. And I kind of look at my 30s of true growth. Um, you know, I look at sort of, um, I spent 10 years at TELUS, you know, from a career perspective. I grew up there. I learned a lot of stuff. I did an MBA. Um, you know, I had two or three major relationships and I kind of figured out what I really wanted. Um, and they were truly, truly formative for me. I got married in my late 30s and I feel like my 40s was really when I could breathe and when I was truly in my skin and I felt comfortable with who I was. I made a bunch of mistakes. I'll continue to make mistakes, but you, be- you become much more comfortable with it. Um, so I would say it was like sort of discovery, um, growth, and you know, truly being comfortable in your skin. That's interesting. Do you, do you think you make fewer mistakes as you get older? I was, we were talking about this hmm. the other day with a friend. Do you feel like, oh, you get wiser, you make fewer mistakes? Do you make fewer mistakes as you get older, or you just get way better at dealing with your mistakes? That's a really good question, actually. I, would, I don't know if I would say I make fewer mistakes, but I believe that there's always lessons in mistakes, you know, and there's always something to be learned. Um, so I think, it, I think you've just hit it right on the head, is you're, being, you're able to take the learning, um, you know, not dwell on mistakes as much as we used to in our younger years, uh, and then move on. So you spent 10 years at TELUS, you're yeah. in the corporate world. Yes. And now you've gone a different direction and it seems to be this concept of intrapreneurship yeah. that something triggered mm-hmm. in your mind and said, mm-hmm. okay, something's got to be different. Tell yeah. us about what is intrapreneurship? Because mm-hmm. it's not, you're not mishearing. I'm not saying entrepreneurship, everyone. It's intrapreneurship. Intra. Yes. What are we talking about? So the whole idea of intrapreneurship is around people um, and cultures that are uh, similar to entrepreneurship but are sort of operating within that, within a large corporate environment. So um, it's being able to take elements of the startup mentality, um, you know, younger companies and start to adopt those principles in larger complex organizations. And I kind of fell in love with the topic because I've been an entrepreneur my entire career. Like, although I've spent most, my entire career in these large companies, I never quite really fit in. You know, something was missing for me. You know, I would go in and I would challenge the status quo. I'd want to try new things. Anytime projects needed to happen very quickly, I'd get assigned them because I would just know how to trailblaze and find out who's going to help me mobilize them 
quickly within the organization. So I always was this sort of oddball, odd person out, um, but things happened very quickly um, for me. And I always knew that there was something unique about what it was that I was trying to do. Um, and, you know, and I obviously rub people the wrong way because you're asking people to change, you're asking people to try things differently, you're constantly challenging, you're constantly asking questions, you have this curious mindset. Um, and I knew that, you know, in every single opportunity that I had, that my time was limited. <laughs> did, you, did you feel like you were being asked to slow down? Because I said, I, I wish mm -hmm. that I'd known this. And mm -hmm. like after I left my job, mm -hmm. uh, they put me on a panel about why young people were leaving mm -hmm. this profession. Yeah. And I was like, oh God, what am I going to say? And then I realized, like, as they asked the question, I was a bad employee. And they said, what do you mean? I'm like, I just... I felt like I was getting slowed down. There were too many hoops to jump through. Mm -hmm. You had to get too many things justified. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, oh, I was an entrepreneur. Just, I didn't realize it. Right. I was stuck. Did you find that one of the things was that you couldn't stand checking in every step of the way? It was like, yeah. it slowed stuff down? I mean, it's definitely like in my research, it's one of the things, you know, one of the themes that have arisen is really around you know, the problem with operating like an entrepreneur within a large company is that these large companies are highly governed, you've got processes like crazy, um, and you've got all these checkpoints and you have to work with all of these cross-functional teams. So yeah, of course, I mean, it drove me nuts to some extent because you want to trailblaze and you want to, you know, particularly in technology, technology expires, you know, the minute it's out, so you need to move fast. But the organization is not set up in order to do that. So for these people who want to operate like entrepreneurs, you constantly get stuck. You know, and so what I've done through my research is present a model that can be sort of disseminated throughout the cult throughout the organization, which is a problem-based model, to say how do we start to embed this thinking throughout the company so that it's easier to emulate emulate throughout, so that it's a, it's an easier way to start, start to adopt culturally. Um, you know, it's one of those, you know, love-hate things. You know, I love to operate within these companies because I love to see the impact. But then for people who want to move quickly, it can be very frustrating. So that's what I found fascinating. Mm -hmm. I quit. Mm. I said, I'm an entrepreneur. I can't work for a company. Mm -hmm. And instead, it seems that you said, oh, I'm an entrepreneur. But instead of saying, well, now I can't work in a company, mm -hmm. why did you decide instead of leaving and saying, okay, I'm an entrepreneur, let's yeah. go? Yeah. It's almost like you said, no. I'm an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. let's make this work. Mm -hmm. Why was that the decision? Because I know a lot of people would just say, oh, I'm an entrepreneur, I quit. Yeah, no, it's a very fair question. I think for me, um, I found people that saw my talent. And that's probably one of the most important things is that you know I spent 10 years at TELUS, that's a long time. Um, particularly for a company that's, you know, it's almost, you know, it's, it's, a, it's highly regulated. Um, but I found people um, and leaders that recognize the value in the work. So if you're producing value for the company, um, there's, you know, that's, that's where the magic happens. So you kind of get carte blanche. You know, if Chitra needs to, we need to, you know, move quickly to develop, um, you know, a new product to market or a new way of doing things or a new way to interact with our customers. Um, and there's value in that because, you know, the majority of the company still operates quite slowly. Um, so it was really around finding people that saw the value in your work. And so that happened quite a bit. You know, and as soon as I don't find people that see my value, then I will leave, obviously. And I think right now, because of what's happening in the global marketplace, it's highly competitive. Um, you know, globalization is huge. Big companies are now being, you know, disrupted by all of these startups, by new business models, by people finding sort of new ways of entering the market that companies have realized that they need to start to adopt these principles in order to, to sustain themselves. Like they're no longer, you know, going to be able to just operate the way they are, that things are changing and there's a shift happening where um, the consumer it's like this hostile takeover. They now have all the power and you need to respond to sort of all of these trends that are happening. And if you cannot, through how you're set up, then your sustainability is questioned. So this is why, you didn't just say, okay, there is this whole subset of people that exist. 
entrepreneurs operating within the corporate environment. I'm going to call them intrapreneurs. Mm. You don't just argue they exist. You're saying they're really, really important. Absolutely. Why? 100%. Because these are the ones that are going to cultivate ideas. These are the ones that are going to mobilize. These are the ones that are going to come up, come up with solutions to your problems. And these are the ones that may not fit into your corporate culture paradigm, if you will. These are the trend spotters. These are the researchers. These are the mavericks. And we need to love them. We need to cultivate them. We need to recognize them. We need to celebrate them. We need to, you know, these are the rebels that you need to sort of harness that talent and really fuel that talent because these are the ones that are going to really, really find these unique problems to solve and then, you know, take it to market. Is there, a, I guess, a checklist? So if someone's listening to this mm -hmm. being like, oh, Am I an entrepreneur? Have you developed sort of, a, all right, yeah. here are the five yeah. questions to ask yourself. What are they? Yeah, I mean, I'll give you a couple. Um, you know, the first one would be somebody who challenges status quo. So somebody who's very curious, you know, you're constantly finding new ways of doing things. Um, um, you know, you're, you're, you're a researcher. Um, you're generally interested in problem solving for the organization or the problem or the business that you're in. Um, you know, you're constantly researching, writing, observing. You've got this natural sort of talent of observing, and you're taking that information and distilling it into something that's meaningful. Um, people that are passionate about what it is that they're doing. They're driven by something that's a bit, it's even more innate and deeper around um, what it is that they do. They're not really caught up in the politics, so to speak, but really, really focused on doing great work. Now, you're my former boss. Yes. You're listening to this. Yes. And you're listening to the podcast going, oh my gosh, one of these people works for me. Yes. What do you do? How do you make sure that, because you probably like, oh wow, I never thought of it, that's what they yeah. are. How do you leverage their power in a more effective way? Well, I think that it's important to realize that these people may not fit into the corporate paradigm, if you will, that we've dictated and um, really sit down and recognize the strength that they have and then how can you take that talent and utilize it in a way that's meaningful for your business. And that's where the leadership needs to come in. So instead of saying, you know, oh, they, they they're, they're, not paying, they're not doing it right. Right change the, these, the area around them so they yeah. can. Yeah, or, you know, they're not, you know, they're not doing it the way, you know, the way the company does it. Like, there is no way, you know, and that's a dangerous place to be. That's not our way. Well, there shouldn't be a way. There should be this sort of, you know, a um, more diverse way of thinking to say they've got their own way. How do we harness that talent to make it a new way? You really like disruption, don't you? I do. What does that word mean to you, disruption? You know, disruption to me means um, being able to help people see things in a radically different light. And when you're able to do that, that's really magical. And it could be something very minute, something very, very simple. But being able to change somebody's perspective is disruptive. Is entrepreneurship, is this desire to be disruptive? Yes. Is it something you're born with or can it be learned? That's a great question. I think it's something that can be learned. I really do. I think we have to allow people to be who they are and behave how they are. I mean, I think the world of work has changed. I think that companies are going to survive based on the talent that they have. Um, and these people, um, need to, you know, these organizations really need to be able to recognize and support their talent. You know, talent is a really, it is really hard to find people who have deep meaning tied to what they do, that they, there's a high degree of trust, that they have deep passion, that they have, you know, deep respect for the organization. That's a really hard thing to find in, in people these days. And people want to be a part of a, a bigger cause, a community. And so if you can cultivate that, through this, you know, these talented people, I think that that's pretty powerful. And, and you, what you said something earlier I found interesting is that entrepreneurs challenge the status quo. Yes. They like to be disruptors. Yes. And the reason that's important, maybe more so than ever before, mm -hmm. is you talked about the shift in power. I know mm -hmm. this is part of your research on yes. the changing way technology has us communicate with each other, but also as a result, the way that businesses and their consumers. And you talked about a power shift. Mm. Entrepreneurs challenge the status quo, mm -hmm. which is good because 
now the power, I, I've read this, you think the power is now in the hands of the consumer, Correct. not the business anymore. Yes. Can you expand on that? Yes. Well, I do think that, you know, with this new world that we're in, this digital economy, this hyper-connected economy through social media, you know, I mean, everything we do, if I'm not happy with an experience, I'll go and tweet about it, I'll go on, you know, I'll go on Facebook, I'll go on Instagram, I'll go on LinkedIn, and we're hyper-connected like we've never been before. And so companies cannot ignore people's opinions, people's values, people's experiences, and those experiences ultimately become the brand of the organization. So if people are not happy, companies need to weigh in and they need to participate and they need to have these dynamic conversations. And you're seeing that a lot of large organizations now are actually using social media to have these dynamic conversations. They're shutting down call centers and now just using Twitter to have these you know, inner, inner interactions and exchanges because they understand that one tweet, two tweets can go viral, right? So it depends whatever that is, and that's a power shift. So, um, you know, an organization's brand, their experience is really the voice of the people. Um, it can't be these cute slogans and, you know, visuals. It has to be human, the interaction. What is the experience? What is the language? How are you communicating with people? And all that power, I believe, is now with the masses. How do you balance this desire for disruption and mm -hmm. an openness to disruption mm -hmm. that introverts bring with a fear that disrupt enough and the foundation crumbles? Like, is that the fear that people push back? Is they're like, oh, you're like, you embrace your entrepreneurs. And they're like, look, you disrupt too much and everything falls apart. No, I mean, I think that you need to be calculated and you need to be mindful. You know, I understand there is value for maintaining your foundation 100%. But in order to really move the needle with your business, you know, you need to really identify two or three things, you know, at a time that are going to be highly impactful, that's gonna drive change um, and not fear that. Um, so there needs to be a balance there, 100%. And it's you know, really the lens of the leader to be able to identify what those are. Uh, I'm fascinated by the world that you came from, PR, public relations, communications. Mm -hmm. You professionally told stories for yes. a living. One of the most impactful things anyone ever told me is that the story is the basic unit of human understanding. Yes. And it seems to me that your job yes. was to help companies tell stories. Yes. I'm wondering if you learned anything from the world of helping businesses tell stories that individuals could adopt. Like what are PR and communications principles that companies use mm -hmm. that individuals could use to better communicate their stories? Because mm -hmm. I found that we help big groups do certain things and sometimes there are things that we teach a company mm -hmm. that we could then say to an individual, you want to tell your story? Mm -hmm. So are there PR communication strategies mm -hmm. that you would say to someone, you want to share your story? Here's how you get a story out. Mm -hmm. You know, at a very basic level, um, yeah, I, I think that they're interchangeable to some extent. Um, when, I t when I tell stories, I believe that everything should be tied to some social, economical, political, cultural element. So whether you're tech, whether you're a retailer, whether you're a food and beverage company, take a macro look at what's going on from those elements and those areas of, of the world. And how does your product or service tie into some of moments that are happening? And that's where the magic happens. That's where people get these aha moments. And why would I care about your company? Why would I care about this technology? Why would I care about, you know, uh, you know, uh, your store or whatever? You know, how does it tie into the grand macro level? I think from a storytelling perspective for individuals, it's very similar. It's like, how do you want to drive relevance into people's lives? What is the basic human understanding? What are people's habits? What do people care about? What's happening at a very, very human level where your content, uh, whatever it is that you're trying to do is going to be impactful to people's lives. And I think that, you know, looking at those social economic things is really important because the product should, ne should be a byproduct of the story. It should never be at the heart of the story. It's really around that issue, that social issue and the product should always be a byproduct of the story that you're telling. Ah, oh, that's because one of my favorite questions I love asking, and maybe it's not fair, is I ask people, why do you matter? And why it seems you like you mm -hmm. just said mm -hmm. the story, and I think that's telling your story. As I'm mm -hmm. asking people, tell me your story. Mm -hmm. Why do you matter? So I always am interested to be like, what 
how do you put together a good story? And it sounds you're saying, what is the heart of the relevance? Right, That's exactly. Fascinating. Now, I, I wanted to find out more about your story. Yes. And so I discovered that there is, and maybe I'm wrong, but mm-hmm. I got the, your family has a mantra, apparently, that it's not what you do, it's how you do it. Mm-hmm. Could you expand on that? Mm-hmm. Why is that your mantra? How did it grow into something important enough to call it your mantra? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Um, it actually came from, um, you know, uh, it was actually after I had my first child. Um, it was like the perfect storm when I turned 40. Um, I was recently married. I had my first baby. I was headhunted for a role at Microsoft, and I got accepted into my PhD program. So it was like four different major things happening in my life, and I didn't know how I was going to accomplish everything that I needed to do. Um, But what I needed to do was sort of set up this system of how I was going to achieve what it is. So it was the system, not really what I was focusing on, so it was my how that was clearly important on, you know, how am I going to write my first paper? How am I going to continue to be active, which is a big part of my life? I run marathons and I'm an amateur athlete. How am I going to uh, take care of my baby? So it was like, how am I going to sort of cultivate and curate my time so that I can achieve what it is that I'm going to? So it was not what I was doing. It was my system and approach to how I was going to achieve it. Interesting. And I want to dive farther into that Uh because a big part of the day one concept is, okay, what are the values that drive our decision making? What are the processes we use to make decisions? But I want to pause for a second. Uh You talked about this point in your life where you've got uh, your PhD is being offered to you. You were headhunted for a job at like a big job at Microsoft, the type that people dream about from what I could tell. And you're expecting your first child. And I, in reading some, uh, some background, you told a story in an article once about how you didn't think that Microsoft knew you were expecting your first child. At some point, you had to deal with, oh, mm-hmm. do we, like, how do we tell them that? Mm-hmm. Because they've just offered you this big job and yes. you know, there's a child coming. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that situation yes. and how you approached it. Um, sure. So I was interviewing for the role and I was about eight and a half months pregnant, so quite visibly pregnant, but I was a fairly small person so I could hide this basketball under my blazer. And, you know, it was the first interview that I was going in, and it was in a boardroom very similar to this. Um, And I was nervous, as you can imagine. I mean, I didn't want to be discriminated again. I wanted to work. I felt that I was highly qualified. I was excited about the opportunity. But I was 38 at the time. I needed to have my kids. I was, you know, I couldn't deny nature. And so I went into the interview, and my husband said to me, you know, do not be afraid to tell them because if they don't want you because you're pregnant, then you don't want to be there. And I was still nervous. I mean, we hear it in theory. We don't see it in practice a lot with women and working conditions with women and women who want to have children. So I went in, we did a great interview, and at the end of the interview, I um, disclosed that I was expecting very soon, like could have happened that moment, and I still continued into the process, and they... Uh, um, told me that I would not be discriminated against for the role, and I wasn't, and they offered me the role. So, because when you say, we, yeah. we hear it in practice, but we don't see yeah. it, we don't see it. So yes. we hear it there, we don't see it in practice. Yes. You mean, we hear, oh, there won't be discrimination. Yes. But it doesn't it, ha- actually happen. Doesn't you do happen. see it all the time. We do see it all the time. In this case, I was not discriminated against. You know, I'm proud to say that they offered me the role, um, and... Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I took a condensed mat leave, which was my decision, so six weeks, which is similar to the U.S., um, and went back to work right away, and, um, and, you know, my husband and I, we definitely are a progressive couple, you know, so we're not concerned about um, roles and responsibilities, it's really about the unit and what's best for the unit, and we, um, and we supported each other through the process. And that's become something you talk about, this, yeah. the, uh, the power of mat- or the importance of maternity leave, uh, the difference between the United States and Canada. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about why that's such a passionate topic for you. Well, you know, for me, it's passionate because, you know, I sort of, I lived the experience of not taking a mat leave in Canada, where you're entitled to a full year. 
And so I think I offended some women, and I think that, you know, I remember t going to a diversity event and I actually spoke about it, and some women were offended because they said, you know, you're changing the rules or you're changing um, some of the, the parameters for women because you didn't take a mat leave. And I don't think that I did that. I, I did what was best for me and my family at the time. The beauty is that women have the power to do what they need to do in order to have a career um, and be a mother. Um, you know, I was not in the office every day. I nursed my child, you know, and that was important to me. But, you know, I had limitations in terms of, you know, my child, my baby came to the office. You know, I kind of did things very differently. Um, and, and I guess my whole point is that, you know, you need to find organizations and people that allow for new ways of doing things, particularly in today's world, particularly with you know, people who want to be mothers or people who are having children later in life. There are different ways of doing things and we need to as organizations and leaders allow for that. So you know, how to nurse, where to nurse, you know, can your baby travel with you? My baby traveled with me everywhere I went. Not because I demanded it, it was because there was a physical dependency. Um, so I just did it, and I wasn't scared to, you know. And so if you allow for that within these new work environments, I think that that is going to be a new shift to happen um, that women will experience. So it's almost you took the entrepreneurial concept, yes. which is I don't have to choose between don't have a child yes. or don't take the job or take the job but take a year off. What are other ways that we can create new spaces for this? Exactly. I don't want to take a year off. I want to nurse my baby, and I want to work. How am I going to do it? So and it's you find back, your own way. It's back to how am I going to do that? What am I exactly, going to do? Exactly. Because you then you then did it differently the next time around, I correct? Did, the next time I did take a year off, um, I took a year off because I wanted to take some time to actually write my thesis. So um, I worked over my mat leave. So um, that, that's not really <laughs> taking some time off. Like, yeah, yeah I took funny. some time off to you know do a PhD. Yeah, exactly. So I took the year off, and I treated it much like a work day, you know. But it was a part-time work day. You know, I worked from nine till one on my thesis, and you know, I sh I shaved off you know a bunch of uh, work, um, and I did that for a year. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just really around finding new parameters, new dimensions to how you want to do things in your life and just do them. And every time you do it, you're going to have somebody, whether like women coming up to you and saying, oh, yes, you, you did that wrong yes. because you did it differently. Yes. So be used to it and be ready for it. I think so. I mean, you know, we do, people will judge. I mean, that is what we do as human beings, unfortunately. But, you know, be prepared if you're going to do something different in your life, um, regardless of what it is, people will have opinions. And that's okay. Because how I did things is not going to be right for every single person. I did things that were right for me and my family. Um, it, it's not universal. Um, all I'm saying is that find new ways. Find different ways. You know, it's not this box of this is how things are done. Things can be done. You just have to find your own way and what, what's good for you. And if you are someone who wants to get the best out of the people around you, don't be afraid when people start to do that. Don't be 100%. afraid when people say, oh, why don't we try it differently? No. That's really a big part of, of your message, it seems. It really is because, you know, it really comes down to leadership. You have to allow for creative freedom. You have to not just say it's okay, but support it. And if it doesn't work and if there's failure, not reprimand the failure. I mean, take the learning um, because things may not work all the time. They're not going to work all the time. Um, but you have to allow for trial and experimentation. You have to allow for, allow for that. It's almost like real effective leadership isn't how well you can get people to do things. Mm -hmm. It's how well you can create an environment where everybody can do different, like can thrive in, in their own way. Exactly. And so it's like, oh, leadership, you're in charge. You have to make this happen. Yes. It's almost as if leadership is about creating spaces for anything to happen. Yes. yes. Oh, it, it's interesting. Uh, okay. Let's talk about how you make decisions or, or at least get to what drives you. You talk mm -hmm. about it's the how you do things. Mm -hmm. So one of my favorite questions uh, to dive into the concept of the values that drive people. Mm -hmm. If someone followed you around for a month of your life, they watched how you interact with people you know and don't know your family and business. I know that's creepy, mm -mm. but 
at the end of it, if I said, what are the values that you think drive this woman? What values does she use whenever she makes decisions? These are what she pivots to, to hold her options up and say, okay, these are the values I use to evaluate my options. What values, if you can give me, let's say, I don't like giving a strict number, especially to an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. What values would you say are your primary criteria for decision-making on a daily basis? Um, I would say truth is one. I'm a very, very honest person. So I never, you know, and I think that that's very difficult for people is just being honest and having truth. Um, I'm a very, very straightforward person. So I will never try and sugarcoat something. I'm just very honest about what I think is the right thing to do. And it's not, it's not um, going to be for everybody. Not everybody's going to be happy with it, right? Because truth is hard sometimes. Um, but I'm always very truthful and honest. I'm very, um, I would say, compassionate. Um, I come from immigrant parents. My father is disabled. And so they have taught me, you know, I come from a very traditional Indian family, the power in compassion, in helping people, and always doing what's right. Um, and I've been taught that from a very young age. Like we used to have people come into our homes where my dad would, my dad is a retired principal and he would coach them and mentor them and, and teach them if they were struggling in school. Um, and we just, uh, you know, we had this truly family sort of value system in that if you can help people, if it's in within your power to help people, help them. And it has to come from a place of compassion. And then lastly, I would say, um, you know, authenticity. Like I have a, a very difficult time not being who I am, or if I'm being forced to deviate from who I am, I'm very uncomfortable. So I'm always just, I am who I am. I know who I am. I know um, what I like, what I don't like, or an environment that I thrive in. But when I'm asked to sort of deviate from who I am, I'm not okay with it. So it always comes from a place of authenticity. I need to be true to who I am. And do you, did you find that you were often pushed that way? We, before we started talking, you said, look, I'm a minority woman in tech. Yes. Did you find there was a constant push to, because that makes you an outlier in many yes. ways. There's not yes. a lot of people like you yet. Right. Um, did you find there was a constant push? And how was, did you feel compassion for the people who pushed it? Because that's got to be so hard to bounce those, to be like, look, you're asking me to act and behave in mm -hmm. ways I'm not comfortable with, mm -hmm. but, I, but you also compassion and honesty. So it's, all, it's hard for me to always figure out how they all work together. Well, um, yes, I've always been pushed, and I think that I've always been a bit of an outlier, not just because I'm a female um, visible minority, but also because I'm an entrepreneur. And so take all that together, um, and you know, you're not going to fit into the mold. Um, and, you know, people will say, you know, she's, you know, not, maybe not, you know, there's this whole idea of, and I say this in some of my talks, is, you know, even as a woman, you know, we deal with this thing called this likability penalty, which actually Sheryl Sandberg talks about, is that women, particularly, have this dire need to be liked. And when you're not liked, you know, you start to retract and refrain from what it is that you're truly wanting to do. And it's funny because when I first joined Microsoft, I saw this uh, gentleman in the cafeteria and he came up to me and he said, oh, you're Chitra, you know, I've, I've wanted to meet you. You're the new head of communications here. And, you know, I know a lot of people at TELUS and I was so excited to meet you because, you know, um, you weren't very well liked there, but you were very well respected. And I was like, what? I was so mortified to hear that. And it was just like going on and on in my brain. And then I, I came home and I told my husband and I said, yeah, this guy came up to me and like I spent time and he's like, but Chitra, like, you know that, like, you know, you are very disruptive. You are changing stuff. You are like trailblazing through all these projects there. And you know, I would be happy to feel respected. And so this, there's this, 
this kind of gap that you need to sort of bridge when you're trying to do things differently, when you're you know, challenging people, when you're kind of the odd person out. And it's this whole likability thing. And so you know, I've had to um, get my head around that. And it's difficult. You know, as human beings, everybody wants to be liked. But you know, when, you're, when, you're, when you go back to your values on what's sort of dictating your behavior and your true north, that's kind of where, you're, um, where you find sort of solace in, right? Like I know that what I'm doing is aligned to my value system, so it doesn't really matter what's going on outside of that. That must be tough to hear, though. Because like, <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, would I be okay with that? And it kind of segues into our next, into our next question, mm-hmm. the, the day one question. Mm-hmm. And I say, picture yourself on the first day of high school. So yeah. you're 13 years old. Mm-hmm. And you go back and you get to have a conversation with that person. And before I ask you what you would, what you would tell her, mm-hmm. let me ask you this. If you could go back to that moment and a, a version of yourself later on looked at you and said, you're not going to be well liked, but you're going to be well respected. Would you be okay with that? Back then? Um, probably not. Probably not. Of course not. I mean, you know, when you're young, you're highly influential. You want to be accepted. You want to be a part of something. But nobody really prepared me when I was younger to say, if you want to do something and if you want to have impact, people are going to talk and, you know, there's going to be, not everybody's going to like you because you're asking, you're telling people there's a new way of doing things and this is why. And you feel, and you're happy. And I'm a happy person, you know. Um, and people don't like that. And, you know, you're asking them to change and it's a difficult thing. So I would go back and tell her, like, you're not going to be liked. Uh, and it's kind of like if you go back to high school, like, you know, all of the ones... Even if you go to any successful person in, ho- in Hollywood, whether they're a singer, because they were successful or they had a talent, they weren't liked by their peer groups, right? It's a form of, you know, it's people's sort of insecurities. Yeah. And they're like, that person is super talented and I don't like that, or whatever it is. You know, but I've always been this well-wisher of, wow, I was drawn to talented people, people that were unique, that people had something. So I would definitely go back and tell her that, and that's okay. You know, be true to who you are and keep doing what you want to do. And don't be intimidated by, you know, the masses of why they may not like you or um, just know that you're being true to yourself and doing what it is that you truly want to do. And let's be clear, too. You, you, you won't be necessarily liked by some people. By some people. Yeah, it's not like no one will like you. No. Because what I found is that, and yes. I talk to people about this, when you talk about use your values as criteria for decision yeah. making, people won't always like your decisions. No. But they will respect the fact that they know how you make them. That's correct. And someone told me once at a, I was a speaker before I went on, and he just yeah. said, no one will see you as good until they see you as consistent. Yes. And I thought, what a valuable way of looking at it. The other important thing to really, to... Um, think about is your output. So what is it that you created? What is the value that you have created? So I have made conscious effort to wherever I am, to whatever job that I was doing, that I focused on the work. What is my output? I want to make it amazing. So that's really important. So it's not just about these intangible things, my approach, my thinking. It was what is the work that was produced that had impact to the organization. What else would you tell that 13-year-old version of yourself before she goes off to school that first day? I would say um, to not be so hard on yourself when you failed. You know, and I think that's a universal truth because we are very hard on ourselves and we get stuck, we beat ourselves up, we get derailed, Um, We think that, you know, because I failed, that path is not for me. Because I've had a bad experience with someone, that path is not for me. Um, But, you know, what I've learned is there's always learning. And I do believe that it's a redirection of sorts. So if you didn't get that job, it's a redirection. Like, I've got a big sort of faith, you know, I come from an Indian background, so I believe in 
um, I do believe in uh, you know your destiny that you know certain things are for you and if they're for, and if you work hard and you're very deliberate and you have a very strong work ethic what is for you will be yours I truly believe that so if you didn't get that job it's okay and I that sort of happened more later in life like in my 40s but I do do believe that you know, I'm not, um, so I would say that to her, is not to really get so caught up on failure, you know. And if you failed, which I failed, you know, even when starting my PhD, I think I failed my first five papers. But, you know, and I was mortified. Um, but I needed to take, I needed to take better um, attention to it. Like I just, you know, I needed to rethink it and take it from a different perspective. There's learning, there's always learning. I will be constantly learning. Um, and then I would say, you know, not to be impacted by, you know, don't let anybody ever say that you can't do something. You know, I remember in high school I had a teacher that said, you know, you know, you know, you, we're so influential when you're younger. You can do this. You can't do that. Um, you know, you can't play sports. Um, you know, you can do whatever you want if you put your mind to it. I mean, the brain, your body, your soul, they're all interconnected and they're very powerful. So, you know, not to allow the outside sort of noise dictate what you can and can't do. That's what I would say. Talk about failure for a second. Mm -hmm. Fascinated by it. Mm -hmm. And I talk about it too. Mm -hmm. But people treat it like it's a dirty word. Mm. Even when they say, oh, of course you're going to fail, they still don't want people to accept that it's failure. We, we repackage it as something. The example I use is that I was doing a, getting ready for my first Twitter chat, which mm. blew my mind because I did not know they could move that fast. Mm -hmm. But one of the questions I said is, well, let's ask teachers, what, how do we create environments where students feel safe failing? Mm -hmm. And someone came back and said, well, why don't we reframe it as, where, how do we create environments where students feel safe taking risks? Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, no, it's the word failure that's the powerful part of the question. I want people to realize that failure is failure. It's okay. It's, we don't have to repackage it as something else. Mm -hmm. How do we teach failure and not to make it act as if, oh no, for, I guess this is my question. People will often say, oh, it's not failure if you learn something from it. And hmm. I'm often been like, no, it's still failure. Accept that it's failure. It's fine. Yes, learn something from it, mm -hmm. but don't be afraid of the word. And I know that you're, you have, failure is part of something you talk about. Mm -hmm. Do you feel there's any, like, is it a dirty word? Do you, think, do you think that failure isn't failure if you learn something from it? No, like, I think that there's a social stigma, uh, for sure. I mean, if you go back to grade school, you know, you get an F on a paper, you failed. Um, it doesn't mean, it means that you haven't grasped the concepts enough in order to move forward. That's the fundamental, then learn it. Yeah. That is a fundamental truth in learning. And so are we saying that you know, if you look at, like, I've got kids in school, is just because they fail, does that not mean that they're going to move forward? Of course not. It means that they need to learn, understand that there's a gap, and move on. So, um, and it's funny, because I just wrote an article in the Globe and Mail about this, um, and failure was, you know, a big part of it. It was, you know, I think failure is an is a absolute um, necessity in learning. Um, unfortunately, there is a negative stigma with it. How do we change that? I think we need to start talking about it more. I mean, if you, if you think about any sort of successful person, even Bill Gates, he talks about his biggest failures, and he said that he needed his failures to learn in order for him to launch his first product at Microsoft. If you talk to Richard, if you read anything about Richard Branson, you know, all he talks about is failing because that's where the learning happens. That's where the magic happens. If you don't fail, you're not going to learn. Like it's just it's completely disconnected. I think where where companies struggle with is they've got these environments where, you know, yeah, failure is a very negative term, and they don't spend the time to set up the environment where failure can be supported. Whether it's calculated failure, whether it's this fail fast, recover fast model, where whether it's a reflection on what did we learn. What is the learning? What, what could I have done better? What do I need to do better in order for it to work? You know, they, they're not set up for that. You lived in the world of technology. You live in the world of technology. Yes, yes. Do you think that it and social media mm -hmm. has played a role in growing a fear of failure? Because 
now it can happen. Like failure, the, I think at this point, maybe you can tell me if you think I'm wrong. A smaller percentage of your life can destroy a bigger percentage of your life in business than any, any time before in human history. So how do we still embrace a willingness to risk and fail knowing that the worst 15 seconds of your life can be broadcast or your company can be broadcast around the world instantaneously? Does that change the way we deal with failure? No, I think that that's a great opportunity for failure, to be quite honest. I think that the heroes in the corporate world are the ones that can publicly say, we failed. Um, this, you know, and, and you know, share this very human experience of how something was a failure. I mean, we're in this world of, and I've seen it, cover up, cover up, cover up, and not share. But people want human. People want this um, transparency. People want to connect and know that you made a mistake. You know, that these big personalities, whoever they, they are, these big corporations, they want to have people. You made a mistake. Well, how did you learn? And what are you going to do better? Um, so be able to have a very humble approach to failure, I think, is the biggest opportunity. And you think that's true on an individual level as well? 100%. 100%. Let's go back to that day one, because I think that's really amazing. I, I never thought of it that way, that social media, that this instantaneous communication gives you the opportunity to be human, because I often, when I see it online now, I often, and this is what I tell other people as a strategy I don't think I've talked about on the podcast, think about the worst 5% of your life, because mm -hmm. we all have 5% of our life that represents us at our meanest, thoughtless, like most least thoughtful, most angry, most jealous, most hurt. All of us have 5% of our lives that represents the darkest part of us. If all anyone saw was any part of that 5%, would that accurately reflect who you are? It wouldn't. Mm -hmm. And so every time I see that, I try to, and I tell people, every time you see something that makes you want to immediately judge others, individuals, or organizations, think about your worst 5% mm -hmm. and assume that's what's happening to them. Right. It's, it, and it's really interesting that you said, embrace the opportunity to be human because that so. that's a powerful and the problem with the word leadership often is that people think you have to give up a piece of your humanity to be it and i couldn't disagree more but there's this idea i can't make mistakes now i'm a leader i have to be inspirational like no you have to be human i think that people also want leaders to be show some vulnerability like leaders are not you know these untouchables that never make mistakes, that don't hurt, that don't cry, that don't get frustrated, you know, or are insecure or not sure. And I think that once you show vulnerability, um, it creates, you know, an element of realism amongst people. Let's go back and talk one last question about your day one self. Mm -hmm. It's a question mm -hmm. that I'd like you to give her and say, look, by the end of every day, mm -hmm. for the rest of your life, I want you to make sure that you have an answer to this question. And whatever question you give her, for the rest of her life, she'll make sure she goes to bed having found, made sure that she did something to answer that question. Mm -hmm. What question would you give her? The question that I would give her is, what have you done today that will help you get to your truest self? What if she says, how will I know what my truest self is? I would say it's what you're passionate about. You know, I think that there's, you know, your core kind of dictates, you know, inside, like, what do you love? What are you passionate about? What do you love to do? What are the environments that you feel comfortable in? That's where your truest self is, I think. Does it change? It's weird when you say truest self, mm -hmm. it seems like this so core, gen like, uh, I don't say I was gonna use the word true to say it, but when you say truest self, it seems like something that is firm and fixed and this is who it is. Does your truest self change? Well, so I took a course at Harvard um, a few years ago and it was around authentic leadership. And they made us do something very interesting. Uh, they made us go back, sort of like divide our lives into from the, our very first memory in like five, five year increments and, and identify the core things that influenced you, negative, positive, 
but memories that you have, high and lows, that really were formative to you. And then they said, you are your truest self when you're like, you know, 16 to 19. You know, you're, you're curious, you're fearless, you want to try different things, you're not really jaded quite yet about people's opinions on what you're doing, but you're really, really, you're, what did you love to do as a kid? Like, what did you love to do? What did you love doing? What, how were you, how was your personality? Because you're really like flourishing as a kid. And then later on is you get all this noise and these uncomfortable situations that sort of, you know, you know, unfortunately impact what you, or you, the decisions that you make. And so it was interesting because I did that and I looked at sort of how I was in my most formative years and I looked at where I am now and there wasn't a huge deviation on where I thought I would be. So I believe that, you know, when you're a child, you know, even younger than 16, it's, it's, it's when you're really exploring on what you love. And so I think that a lot of us struggle to find our place in the workplace or what companies we want to build or, you know, who our people are that we want to be surrounded with. But, you know, when we can go back and sort of identify what are the things that sort of made you happy as a child, the interests that you had, um, the activities that you did, I think that that is where we are closest to our truest selves. You're kind of on a day one sort of phase right now. You've had the corporate world, but mm -hmm. the PhD is, mm -hmm. I guess you're most of the, you're halfway, is it? I have about a year out. About a year out. Yes. Speaking now, talking yes. about this concept of entrepreneurship. Yes. It's a new chapter in many ways. Yes. Imagine, this is a spin, I've never really asked this question before. Yes. The version of you 10 years from now walks into this room and sits down there, mm -hmm. and you get to ask her any question you want. What would you really like to know from the person who you are 10 years from now? Hmm. Um, I think it would be similar. You know, like, did you, are you happy? Are you happy? Like, have you followed the path that you thought was right for you? Are you happy? You know, happiness is such a multi-dimensional thing. You know, how do we define happiness? I mean, that's just like another big conversation, but you know, so many people see uh, financial reward and success as happy, but that's just like one element of your life. You've got personal relationships, you've got marriage or partnership, you've got, you know, health, uh, learning, you know, and I would want to ensure that that person had balance amongst those dimensions. One of my favorite questions surrounds what I call cultural cliches. Mm -hmm. Things that, in some ways, they're learned even though they're never taught. Yeah. They're things that are repeated that no one really bothers to check the validity anymore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So one of my favorite questions of leaders is, is there one of these cliches? Is there something that you were taught growing up that just you've discovered and from experience isn't really that true? Mm -hmm. I always ask people. People are fascinated by what you found to be true about life, about business, about mm -hmm. leadership. They're interested in what you found to be true. Mm -hmm. They're fascinated by what you found to be false. Mm -hmm. What's something that a lot of people have probably been taught that you found isn't actually true? I would say, um, you know, people often say, you know, good work will prevail, or if you do great work, um, you know, you'll be recognized, or it'll be recognized, and you'll be successful. I think that that's a bit of a cliche. <laughs> Unfortunately, spending my uh, years in, in the corporate world, you know, and just the way corporations sort of dictate or what drives their decisions um, is not necessarily based on people's output, which I think is a tragedy. It's, you know, it's, you know, it's more politics trumps people's work. So hard work doesn't always necessarily it pay off. I don't think so. What's the truth then? What, what have you found to actually be well, true? Well, I mean, to what I just said, I think it's, you know, depending on the environment that you're in, you know, politics plays a big role. Who you know plays a big role. Um, and it's, you know, and then you have these people who are truly passionate about the work. 
And it's not the work that prevails, it's the relationships, it's the political relationships. And we, we see that in life all the time. Um, but for the people that are not politically charged or you know, who don't want to play that necessarily game, if you will, their good work, this, these dynamics trumps people's good work. So in the long run though, do you find that consistent good work does eventually pay off? Or, do, or, or is the real message here to make sure that yes, do good work, but also you know, make sure you foster relationships. They don't have to be necessarily political and yeah. conniving, yeah. but it is important. Um, definitely, definitely to an extent for sure. Um, absolutely, I mean, I, nothing in life sort of happens without personal relationships. Um, it, yeah, it's definitely finding a balance between the two. But if, you know, if you were to ask somebody who is, let's say, introverted or just wants to go and do great work, um, you know, we always say, you know, be patient, things will happen. You know, you have to be deliberate on making things happen, right? So it's not going to happen on its own. It's really around making things happen, around like being deliberate around that. Essentially, you say that I, uh, I ask people to share often uh, as part of a, the process I do for surfacing values. Give me three tips, like 30 tips for life. We call them the edge of the bed advice, what mm. you give your kid on the edge of the bed before they left for home for good. Mm. And one of the people wrote, uh, uh, talent isn't everything. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. This, this is probably what they're getting to at is that, oh, it's hard work matters, et cetera. And she's like, uh, when I actually asked her to surface what she meant by that, she's like, oh, no, I mean that you can be more talented than other people and it won't always pay off. Like that sometimes better work, harder work, um, being more honest hurt you. Yes. And she's like, and I just think going into the world wide open about that is a better approach. She's like, I'm not being cynical. I'm just like, don't act as if just because you're more talented or you work harder or you do better work that the rewards will come. Mm -hmm. When it doesn't, it doesn't mean that the world has screwed you over completely. Yeah. Keep working at it. Agreed. I just found that fascinating. I think, it's, I think it's just a realization. Like, understand that, you know, if you're, if you're talented, if you're smart, I mean, it's really, if you look at any any, any transaction that you have, everything is cultivated through personal relationships. So sometimes those trump talent, right? It's like, how do people get to the top? Is it through hard work or, or is it through who they know? Or, you know, we see all of these, we see all the political plays that happen within these large organizations. And, you know, how does that happen? It's personal relationships. One of my favorite, and uh, maybe it's a, a great way to tie this piece up, but I asked someone and he said, oh, I tell my kid that uh, people are jackasses that the world is filled with jackasses. And he says, all I ever want from you, son, is don't assume that everyone is because some are. Mm -hmm. And I thought, ah, oh, there you go. That's yeah. how he's like, I thought he was being all cynical. He's like, the world is filled with jackasses, mm -hmm. but not filled. He's like, there's lots, but they're not all. Please don't treat everyone like they are, even if most are. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Let's close with this. Mm -hmm. What's got you excited coming up? And where can people find out more about you and the work that you do? De well, I'm definitely in um, transition because I'm finishing my thesis. So that'll be done uh, in about a year. I'm continuing to speak with the Lavin Agency. I'm going to be a regular contributor to the Globe and Mail and their innovation lab. So I've got my first article coming out next week. I'm going to be teaching. So I'm doing some part-time academic teaching. And then, you know, I'm working on a book. So I'm working, I'm, um, you know, going to take all of this stuff and make it, you know, into something really interesting that you know that I can offer um, not just people in the business world, but I think there's a lot of life lessons in entrepreneurship on how to you know approach um, things differently in your life um, and at work. What's your closing message for all the entrepreneurs who are listening to this, being like, "Thank you, I now have a name for what I am." What's your final message to the entrepreneurs listening? Well, I would just say, you know really focus on mastering your craft. So whatever that is, um, you know, if it's whatever that skill or talent is, like master your craft and become, you know, just amazing at it um, and focus on what it is that you want to do and just go make it happen. There are ways to do that. I want to thank you so much. Thank I know you. that things are busy. You've got a lot on the go. And to take an hour and, and share ideas is, is a, a huge uh, pleasure for me. So thanks so much. And best of luck with all the new exciting projects. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. 
And that'll bring us to the end of another Day One Leadership Podcast. Thanks so much to Shithra Anand for coming out and joining us this week. My apologies, it was a little echoey. Didn't realize that was the case when we were recording, but we'll keep trying to make things better every single week. Thanks again for listening. If you haven't yet given us a five-star review on iTunes, it would mean a lot if you did that. I'm going to start giving some shout-outs to everybody who gives us a review, probably the ones who give us five-star reviews, but... And I might send a stuffed penguin. I'm not guaranteeing it, but if you were kind enough to go to iTunes, give us a five-star review. I may or may not send you some penguin-related paraphernalia. It means a lot to everyone who's following us both on Twitter and on the website. You can get us on Twitter at at dayoneleadership. That's D-A-Y, the number one, and leadership. And of course, the website is dayone, D-A-Y-O-N-E, leadership.com, where we've got new content every week. Make sure you check it out. And we've got some big announcements coming up in terms of some new initiatives and programs that I'll be launching. So stay tuned and we'll let you know when that is live. I'm Drew Dudley. This is day one. Every day is day one. Thanks for listening.